You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Thanks again to Adam and the parish for inviting me to Toowoomba this week. I've had coffee with lots of people. We've had a number of really great events uh, and I've been able to get some of my own Ridley work done in the Toowoomba Library some afternoons as well. So I'm really appreciative of uh, the hospitality you've offered and the opportunities I've had for ministry this week. Let me pray. Praise you, Heavenly Father, for your people here. And praise you for the opportunities you give to each of us every day to honour you, body, mind, soul and strength. Please may this, your word to us this morning, strengthen us in our service. For we pray it in Christ's strong name. Amen. The French philosopher Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. You've probably heard the slogan, I think, therefore I am. You could tweak it slightly if you're a capitalist and say, I consume, therefore I am. It's probably the slogan of most Australians, actually. We prefer to consume rather than think. But for many of us in our culture, the motto probably gets closer to, I have sex, therefore I am. We live in a sex-saturated society and we think the only way you can be really you is to express yourself sexually. Some of you might have watched Married at First Sight or perhaps you won't admit it but you have done anyway. A couple of years ago there was a season where one of the guys who was cast was known as the Virgin. He was a guy, I think, in his 30s, and the series was built around the conflicts that emerged as basically the women around him tried to get him into bed. It's obviously a very powerful marketing tool to advertise this series with a fellow who was a virgin. Turns out in the end that he probably wasn't, but that's the way the, the show worked. If you typed into your browser 40-year-old, you would probably find in the list of options below 40-year-old virgin, which was a movie that uh, came out a few years ago. I did this, and that's exactly the first thing that came up. It's weird in our culture not to have had sex. There are many of us who haven't. I'm a single man. There are many of us who haven't, but the culture we live in the culture that moulds us, shapes us, forms us, is a culture in which we assume the way you can be truly you is to have sex. It's seen as the bedrock of our personal identity, the most significant thing about who you are. And it's backed up by uh, kinds of philosophy which say, What's most true is not what's universal, but what's local. It's called post-modernity. And in post-modernity, the really true things are the local things. And what can be more local than your own 
sexual identity, sexual self-expression. We live in a sex-saturated society and learning how to manage that as Christians is a really enormous challenge. It's a really hard challenge for me as a single guy, but it's hard for all of us, whether you're single or married. Because if you're single, you might well be struggling with pornography. If you're single, you might well want desperately to be married. If you're married, there are pressures that you face because of the sex-saturated society we live in. Society will pressure us in any number of ways, sexual and otherwise. I feel these pressures because I'm a single guy, celibate and same-sex attracted. So I have to think carefully about how I build my identity. What's my sense of self? Because intimate sexual expression is not an option for me as a Christian. So in this sermon, I want to step back a little bit from the question of same-sex attraction or homosexuality and ask us a question about what's the big story of the Bible? Because that might help us work out the details of pastoral, of pastoral care. And it's important that we get the Bible storyline right. I've had a number of colleagues in Melbourne who don't share my assumptions write to me and say, I've got the Bible wrong. I've had to find good reasons to defend a conservative view of marriage and sexuality. It's important we get the Bible right. <laughs> it's important that we understand the Scripture's message. That will be the first part of my sermon. But the second part will be how we might offer pastoral care to those in our families, perhaps, in our church, who are same-sex attracted. Thankfully... <laughs> The Bible gives us the picture. Working out what sexuality is about is not like getting a jigsaw puzzle without the lid of the box. We have the lid of the box. We have the picture. The scriptures give us clearly how we might think about physical life, sexual life, spiritual life. We might have to put the pieces of the puzzle together. It might not always be easy to do. But the scriptures give us the template. It's not just trial and error. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God spends lots of time separating things. Have you ever noticed that as you read Genesis 1? God separates the night from the day. God separates the dry land from the sea. God continues to separate things. He makes humankind in his image and then separates them into men and women. Though all human beings, all men and women, bear his image, are dignified in their bodily life. All human beings receive gifts at birth. It might be that we receive the gift of our skin colour. It might be that we receive the gift of a family. It's certainly the case that we receive the gift of a gendered body. 
It might not be that we always feel comfortable in our bodies, right? That's perfectly reasonable. But nonetheless, God is a giver of gifts. In Genesis 1, we're born male or female. But interestingly, in Genesis 2, God has spent lots of times separating things in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, he puts one thing back together again. He makes male and female, gives them marriage, makes them one flesh. He joins men and women, or at least one man and one woman, back together again, expressed ultimately through intercourse, so that the two may be one. There's only one thing he joins together again after separating everything else. That one thing joined together is a man and woman in marriage. Indeed, a man and woman in marriage is a picture of God's ultimate plan for the creation. At the end of the world, at the end of history, all things will be united with Christ the head. There will be a joining together again, Christ with his church, the bridegroom with the bride. Marriage is a picture of where history is heading. From the first page of the Bible to the last, the presentation is consistent. Marriage is a picture of the way the world should be, the way the world will one day be. And in the meantime, you and I, male and female, learn how to use our bodies to serve each other. Our gendered bodies, being male or female, drives us out of ourselves, so we make connections and attachments in the world around us. Sexuality is a good gift from God. But in Genesis 3, you know the story, there was a catastrophe. Men and women, Adam and Eve, decided not to take God at his word and go their own way with enormous consequences. In their bodies, they experienced pain. Their bodies had now a new kind of labour and work in the world. In, the, in their bodies, human beings mistreated each other. The fall... Human sin impacted the way we think about, the way we experience our bodies. But still, in the Song of Songs, later in the Old Testament, God gives us a poem that celebrates sexual relationship between a man and a woman, despite sin. Yes, of course, sin has infected our world. Yes, of course, sin has broken us sin has disordered all of us in various ways but still there's a poem that praises the goodness of the sexual relationship well jesus is teaching his disciples and in matthew chapter 19 he's asked a question about divorce 
Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They didn't really want the answer right. They just wanted to trick him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It's a ridiculously global question. But notice what Jesus does. He's asked a very particular question about divorce. He takes the Pharisees back to Genesis 1 and 2 and says this. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Jesus doesn't improve on the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't change the Old Testament. Jesus answers the very particular question about divorce in the context of God's plans for the universe. Jesus reaffirms the importance of the male-female relationship. And Jesus knew about Greek and Roman attitudes towards homosexuality, to men sleeping with men and women sleeping with women. Jesus knew his world. He knew his context, but he still defends the position that marriage is between one man and one woman. I'm on the Doctrine Commission of the National Church We've had lots of debates about this. But even those who disagree with me say, we agree with you, Reese. Jesus never affirms a same-sex relationship. Even those who disagree with me recognise that the universal witness in the Gospels is that marriage is for a man and a woman. Now, I know that that is difficult for those who are same-sex attracted, for others who've experienced difficulties in marriage. But Paul offers wonderful words of compassion and hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read a few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What wonderful words of hope. Such were some of you. But through the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Spirit, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified, you have hope. God doesn't leave us where we were. He gives us a fresh start. Or as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, grace trains us to say no to unrighteousness. Paul knew of the Roman world and its attitude to homosexuality. And he writes about it in Romans chapter 1. But he still offers this hope in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to any who 
had that way of life which would disqualify them from the kingdom. Well, just as the Bible starts with one man and one woman being joined together, so the end of the Bible we read of a wedding feast. Not now a wedding feast celebrating one man and one woman, but a wedding feast celebrating the union between Christ and his bride, the church. The picture of sexuality, the picture of experiencing gendered bodies is a wonderful picture that describes how intimate will be the relationship between Christ and his people at the end of the age. There'll be no marriage at the resurrection because there'll just be one marriage between Christ and his church. Sexuality will have achieved its good purpose when God builds a new world in which we might know intimacy with him and with each other forever. Friends, the scriptures don't give Christians the option of expressing same-sex attraction through genital intimacy. That's not the kind of intimacy or oneness our bodies were designed for or the universe was designed for. We're better off. We flourish when we work with the grain of the universe rather than against the grain of the universe. You know what it is when you're doing some woodwork and you're trying to plane, but if you plane against the grain, the wood splinters. But if you plane with the grain, you'll produce a beautifully smooth piece of work. So it is with our bodies. If we work with the grain of the universe, we'll find a flourishing life, better than we could ever have imagined otherwise. Having a gendered body is a gift from God to help us build each other up. And that's true of those who are heterosexual as well as those who are same-sex attracted. Gender pulls us out of ourselves and helps us serve, make connections, attachments with the world around us. One qualification, one that's been really helpful for me from James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. James speaks about desires, but makes this qualification. Let me read for us. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and are enticed. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it's full grown, sin gives birth to death. Did you notice how there are distinct sages? You can desire, but that's not yet sin. There's sin, that's not yet death. Attractions in themselves are not wrong, but attractions can give birth to sin, and sin gives birth to to death. So how do we pastorally care for same-sex attracted Christians? This came home to me a few years ago. I was watching a show on Netflix called Coming Out Colton. Some of you might have seen it. Colton was an NFL player in the US 
and he gets cast as the bachelor on the TV show in the States. He was surrounded by his bevy of 15, 20 women, and over the course of the season, he gets to choose one. He was a prized possession. The women were falling over themselves to receive his hand in marriage. He chooses a, a particular woman from the cast. They move in together. And as it turns out, having lived together, he then starts abusing her physically. He commits domestic violence and she takes out a restraining order against him. He also turns to drugs uh, of dependency. The story, of course, gets wide media attention. But it's only when it's received wide media attention that he wants to tell his story. His story is that he's same-sex attracted and that being placed under these kinds of pressures from the TV show, which, of course, he let himself do, and then the relationship he had with this woman just built up the pressure. He exploded, but he had no excuses. The show takes us through his journey. It's really well done. The story is really well told. It's only a few episodes in that you discover before he went on the show, he attended church. He was a Christian and he decides in the show that he needs to tell his Christian buddies that he's gay. So he gathers them around, they're playing a bit of basketball and he calls me and says, guys, I've got something to tell you. Um, the reason why I abused my partner is that I was gay. No excuse. Those were the reasons he gave. I thought that his Christian buddies were great. They gathered around him. They said that they loved him. There were lots of bro hugs, lots of genuine caring. They said, we love you, we want to stick with you, we just disagree with your decision. The episode ends. I was pretty happy with the way Christians were presented. The next episode in this excellent storytelling sees him angry at his Christian brothers. He was angry because he said, if you disagree with me, you hate me. So the producers took him to a gay-affirming church uh, in a small group meeting with folk who were gay, folk who were trans, and they talk about theology. The way they talk about theology is really poor. They misuse the Bible. But nonetheless, he feels quite comfortable in their midst. He feels more loved because he feels more affirmed. I pondered for days, for weeks actually, how would I care for Colton if he were a member of my congregation? What would I say? What would I do? In the meantime, I've written a blog for an English website that you can find a fuller explanation of how I think you might care for someone like Colton. 
we couldn't promise that if he becomes a Christian, he'll have his feelings changed. That happens occasionally, but you can't promise it. We can't promise him that he'll find a wife who is prepared to forego sex. Could happen, but you can't promise it. You couldn't promise that life as a single wouldn't be hard or sometimes lonely. It would be, I think, inappropriate for me uh, as a pastor to try and explain to him psychologically why he experiences the feelings he experiences. There's lots of things I know I can't say that would be inappropriate. But how do we help care speak into this situation? Well, in the first instance, don't speak. In the first instance, listen, listen, and listen some more. Now, that's generally good pastoral advice, right? Not to give answers too quickly when people come to you working through issues in their Christian life, in their experience. That's the case for lots of different kinds of pastoral issues, not just for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. But listen, please, because most people who come to speak to Christians will know that Christians have some hesitations, might feel judged already. Please do lots of work in listening. It's okay not to speak. Sometimes speaking gets us into trouble. That's what Job found out when he listened to his friends. Secondly, perhaps reframe the conversation, not to speak so much about what this person can't do. Perhaps reframe it as what this person can do, how this person can contribute to the fellowship, to the church. Yeah, their discipleship will be a costly discipleship, no doubt. But they have something to offer, not just something to deny. Find ways of affirming their own ministries, their care of others, their contribution to the life of the church. And ultimately, we want to believe and in time share that desires are not our destiny. Desires are not our destiny. This is my takeaway as I thought of how to care for Colton. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is not what we desire. Our desires don't control my life. Our desires don't control my future. My desires are not my destiny. There's so much more about you, so much more about me, than merely our desires. So in having that conversation, we need to relativise the issue and speak about not just sexual identity, but how we always, all of us, have to learn to use our body for the good of others. How we learn, unlearn perhaps, then relearn, how we use our physical selves to serve those around us. That's true for all of us. For those uh, in church this morning who yearn for marriage but are single, we need to help them understand how their bodies can be used to care for others. 
You're not denying bodies. We're actually affirming bodies and their value. For those in church this morning who are married with different challenges or frustrations, we have to help people understand they can use their bodies faithfully even if their sexual relationship is painful or non-existent. For those in church this morning who are widowed, we can thank God for the ways that God has blessed their bodies, perhaps having had children, perhaps having cared for their feeble or dying spouse. Whatever your life situation, wherever you find yourself, you can use, you need to learn how to use your body, how to think about your physical life as a gift to the people around you. Whether single or married, we all face different kinds of temptations, but we must be faithful in accordance with God's design for sex. If we elevate our desires, we go looking to fulfill them in ways that are out of step with God's good plans. But beyond the pastoral conversation, how can we help, encourage those in our church with same-sex attractions? Well, first, something really simple to do is offer hospitality in your home sounds kind of so stupidly simple right when I was growing up it was pretty standard that you had neighbours into your home often on Sunday lunch after church but the average Australian apart from grandparents or perhaps cousins the average Australian only has people in their home twice a year can you believe that I think it's just staggering of course, we do hospitality. We take people out for coffee. We take people to restaurants. I, we're not, as Australians, ungenerous. But we've forgotten to see our homes as a venue for loving people. It might be that your home is not as good as the other person's home. I have a hesitation to invite people for dinner who I think are better cooks than me. But I think, no, the point isn't... The point isn't how good I am at cooking. The point is that I'm inviting people into my life and my space and my home. A woman named Rosaria Butterfield, uh, a feminist uh, lesbian academic in the US, got converted when she was doing some research on Christianity. She decided she needed to actually talk to Christians if she was going to write about uh, Christianity and feminism. So she contacted the local pastor and he and his wife invited her into their home. She was in a same-sex relationship at the time. And she writes how amazingly transformational it was to see them in their home, to be invited into their lives, to see the way their family operated. She said it was so powerful. In the end, she left the relationship she was a part of and finally, in years down the line, married and had children of her own. But it started with genuine, loving hospitality. It's not rocket science, but it can be a revolution in Toowoomba. 
We need to teach people that being single isn't the end of the world. It's not a punishment. It's not a catastrophe. It's actually, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, a gift, a calling, a vocation. So it just means that I have an extra gift. I have an extra calling. That's a calling to singleness, which I can use to serve you, to serve my brothers and sisters, to serve my students at Ridley. There are some things I've learned about living in the body that I might use to share with others and encourage others in their friendships, as we spoke about last week, for example. God has abundantly used my singleness. I remember uh, years ago I was seeing a psychiatrist in Melbourne and finished speaking with him for about a year, driving back from his uh, rooms to the university where I was living at the time and just sobbing in the car the whole way from Kew to Carlton, saying, God, use this experience. Use this experience to bless others. And he's done that abundantly. We're prone to speak about microaggressions in our world, little things that annoy us and we turn up the volume on them and speak of them in such negative ways. But I think Christians should be practising micro-affirmations. The little things we do, the little things we do can have such beautiful big impact beyond their size. I was, after the first service this morning, I preached taking communion, I was sitting here in the front row and a dear elderly sister comes down the aisle and as I've got my head in my hands, she touches me gently. That was a micro-affirmation. She was reaching out to me having preached a difficult sermon. I think those micro-affirmations through use of words, through use of touch, through invitations are enormously powerful. Don't, don't ignore them. Use them to bless. Perhaps we ought not to expect all same-sex attracted Christians to use the same language to describe their experience. Different words mean different things to different people. Uh, I don't think we should get too fussed about this. Some Christians will use the language of gay. I don't myself use that word to describe me. It means nothing to me. I've never been in that scene. But there'll be other Christians who have come out of that scene and are more comfortable with that word. I don't think we should expect all Christians to use exactly the same language. We should uh, err on the side of generosity when it comes to how we think words should be used. But in all of this, the greatest resource that you have for those, our family members, friends, colleagues, mem uh, other members in the church, for, for caring for those who are same-sex attracted, is the Christian fellowship. The Christian fellowship is this magnificent resource God has given us. You guys are yourselves a gift to those who are same-sex attracted. Thank God for it this morning. Well, we started this service, uh, this sermon, by thinking of the slogan by Descartes, I think, therefore I am. The slogan by a capitalist, I consume, therefore I am.
Perhaps I might conclude with this, my own personal slogan. I am Christ's, therefore I am. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. May that be a slogan for all of us. So let me pray. Grant, Heavenly Father, that we would understand these complicated matters and that we would know how to commend the Christian vision of a flourishing life in the world and especially amongst those we know who are same-sex attracted. Please, in our words, in our prayers, our attitudes, our invitations, make us a blessing to many, for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.